Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that songs like that are not just for little children. You take care of us. You have followed through on all of your promises. You're the best father ever and the best example ever. And you never leave us or forsake us. So as we struggle with our humanity, as we deal with issues, may we realize your word helps us. And this time in your word can be a great benefit for our spiritual growth. Or if someone doesn't know you, to come to know you and to realize what Jesus was trying to teach. So thank you for this time. Use it for your pleasure, your glory, and um, help us to be more like Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are beginning a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to do a little bit of background. Um, when I encourage you to read, I just put the verses we were going to cover. But anytime we do anything in Scripture, you always want to check out the context. All right? So feel free. Don't get, be limited by what I put at the bottom of the page. As you look back in Matthew, how many read Matthew 1 to 5? All the way from chapter 1 on? Okay, a few he did. It helps a lot to see that. What he's leading up to with chapter 5 is that Jesus Christ has authority to teach. How do we know that? You look back in Matthew, and in chapter 1, the genealogy, everything about the genealogy points to him as being the Messiah, being God, being the one who was promised. And so he's trying to help us realize his genealogy as Jesus the Christ is clear. Far above any other man, any other rabbi, which is what he would have been called in the day. Just uh, their word for teacher, but a special, special meaning behind that. The other thing you see in chapters 1 to 4 are a variety of prophecies. Matthew goes out of his way to tell us he's virgin born. Goes out of his way to tell us that he's born in Bethlehem. Goes out of his way to tell us he came out of Egypt. All of these fulfilling scripture. That he was going to be a Nazarene. Hard to find probably comes more out of the meaning of some of the Hebrew words in the Old Testament. But he was going to be a Nazarene that's brought up by Matthew. And that he would be a great light specifically in Galilee. Where's Galilee? It's not the United States. It's in Israel. It's the northern province of Israel. It's not a reference to where the 12 tribes divided everything up. It's just a, a region around the Sea of Galilee that's called Galilee as a province. So it would have been kind of like the state of Galilee, state of Oregon, kind of that picture. So as he is prophesied that he would be a great light in Galilee, that's what you're beginning to see right at the very beginning here. These prophecies being fulfilled right before our eyes. And then we see in chapter 3, verse 17, that even God himself speaks out when his son is baptized. Behold, a voice out of, out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And other passages in scripture say, listen to him. So he has a great introduction in Matthew 1 through 4 to prepare us for what's going to happen with chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, which is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe better yet, the Sermon on the Hill. Because when you realize going back and looking at history, the Mount of Olives is about 2,300 feet, give or take. Couldn't get any accurate measurements because I'm not a computer buff. But I know it's around there. The uh, picture of Mount Zion, around 2,600 feet. Um, Mount Gerizim, that's mentioned in um, some of this, and especially with John 4.20, about 2,800 feet. Do we call those mountains? No. No. 
They're hills, but to them, they're mounts. So Mount of Olives, they would use that term, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, Mount Gerizim. Mount Sinai is probably more, again, they're debating as to which one, but the one they believe it is is about 7,000 feet. How, how high is Mount Bachelor? Around 9,000, a little over 9,000 feet, and we still call it a mount. But when you get around some mountains that are up in uh, the 17,000s, the 29,000s, you're kind of going, these are little hills. And so just so you understand, he went up on the mountain. When you go over into Luke, and some of the translations says he went out into the hills to pray. Same context. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples. When you go into Luke, you realize a lot happens between verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 5. He chooses his 12 disciples before this sermon takes place. Luke 6, specifically 12 to 16, and then on, read on down through there. But as he's laying this out for us to see, he's going to zero in on a few things. So back to chapter 4, 17 to 22, the immediate context is trying to bring out the fact that you have a new king. He says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a pretty common phrase. We kind of... We can spout it off. We might even have it memorized. But exactly what is he getting at here? It's Jesus himself who is requiring a radical change in their lives when he commands them to repent. Not optional. Who's he talking to? Who, what's the context here? He's in the area of Galilee, so who is he talking to? Jews. I'm not saying they can't be a Gentile here and there, but the priority and the focus of this time is he's speaking to the Jews, the Jewish nation who had the law, who had the prophets, who had all their religious leaders, who had the temple, and all that's involved with that. Romans 9 lays it out really well, all the things that they had. And yet the first words that come out of his mouth to them in a bold statement are, repent. What is he saying about Israel? It's not good. How religious was Israel? Very good. How unified was Israel? Very. Because it had to be. All their enemies were coming upon them. They had to work together. Now, Samaria kind of had its own problem there in the middle. Religious, unified, but they needed to repent. The word carries the idea of change your minds. Specifically, be converted is what he's trying to bring up when he brings this word out. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Sadducees. Back up a little bit in chapter 3 of Matthew. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, this is John the Baptist, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. This change of mind. If you really are changing, you're going to let go of being a Pharisee. You're going to let go of being a Sadducee. You're going to follow Jesus Christ and it'll make a radical change in your life. The New Testament makes it clear when you become a true believer with the beginning of the church, you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This should characterize your life. You should get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, What's God going to do on me today? He's constantly working. He's constantly conforming me to the image of his son. And we volunteer willingly and we say, let's go, God. Show me how. 
Bring the trials I needed. Bring the chisel I need in. Bring the hammer, whatever needs to be happening in my life. But bring it in because my goal isn't to be a good Pharisee or Sadducee or a good religious person. It's to be just like Jesus Christ. This is what he's trying to stress to them. So as he's talking to these Jews near Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, which is what the context will bring out, he tells them to repent. Turn around. Admit you're heading in the wrong direction, Israel. Change your mind from earthly to heavenly thinking. Be converted from self-rule to God's rule. Pretty simple. How hard is that? What's it going to take? Everything. You have to lay it all at the feet of Jesus and let him pick up and get back to you whatever he wants. And you have to let him change your clothing, your appearance, your friends, your work, everything. It's all up to him. He says as he goes on here that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting little phrase. 32 times in Matthew does he talk about the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom focuses around God's sovereignty, God's royal power, God's dominion. And what he's saying to them is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your king is here. Me. What are you going to do with me? And so when he gets further into the message, this word righteousness shows up a variety of times. But in Matthew 6.33, what does he say to them? Part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is an open book exam. Seek first, first priority, number one thing in your life. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the king is your leader and his guidance as your standard of living, your, his righteousness. That's it. That's what he's trying to bring back to the Jews. That's what he's telling them to repent about because they aren't doing it. Matthew 18, 30, um, verse 3, just to grab a couple verses that kind of tie in with that. Same book, same author, Matthew 18, 3, he says, Jesus speaking, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's it take to get into the kingdom of heaven? Conversion. And what, do you, what does it look like? You become like what? Children. So when, when Melissa's up here today, she's fully cooperating with me. I didn't know what would happen. We've had other children get up and they just panic, freeze, get frustrated. The only thing she told me was not to move her mic. <laughs> but children are cooperative. They're like clay. They're easily worked with. And this is exactly what he told them he wants them to do when he goes at Matthew 18.3. He brings out another one, John 3. I mean, Matthew 18.3. But he goes over to John 3, just another one to grab on. And this is, again, Jesus speaking, so I'm just pulling these back in. When he's talking to whom in John 3? Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there are interchanges between kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, great similarities, maybe some slight differences once in a while, but the same picture, you must be born again. You must be converted. You must become like a child. This is why it's so hard when you witness to adults. This is why it gets much more difficult as they get older, 30s and 40s and 50s. The concrete gets harder and harder. 
It's more difficult to penetrate and to help them see the need in their life. They get settled in their ways, don't we? Old people. Anybody over 40? This is what he's trying to bring out. This is what he's starting to get to before he ever gets to the sermon. And what he says to them in verse 18 is, walking by the Sea of Galilee, so we know where he's located, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. You, Andrew always gets left out. I don't know if he was a lot younger, a lot littler, or a lot quieter, but Andrew gets left out. But they're casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. Oh, amazing. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And what did they do? They immediately left their nets and followed him. They instantly obeyed. There was no hesitation on their part. You look at them and you go, they must have heard Jesus speak already. They must have known a little bit about who he was as a rabbi. You aren't going to have some stranger walk up to you on your job and say, follow me. And they turn around and walk away and you just go, okay. There had to be some information that had been passed on. But this is how they respond. He is a rabbi. He is a respected rabbi. And as I've said, you can compare the other gospels to see more information be fit in here. But he says, I'm going to take you from, from being fishermen to fishers of men. Vast difference between the two. But similar techniques. How do you share the gospel with people? You get a shotgun out and you try to find them in the lake? You throw the bait out with a hook on it if you really want to catch them. I remember Mark Barrett constantly telling me, he said, too many Christians go fishing and they do everything but try to catch the fish. They lead them right up and they tell them, here's, here's the bait. Oh, look at this bait. You would love this bait. And the fish says, oh, I love this bait. This is the bait I want. And then you don't ask them if they want to take the bait. You pull your line in, you put it in the boat and said, I went fishing. They weren't biting. Why don't we ask? Why don't we seek a decision out of them when we get to that point? What are we afraid of? <gasps> of rejection? Okay, they may say no. The fish may say, no, that's not my bait and I'm not interested. What else are we afraid of? Okay, they may question us. Oh, no. They're going to ask questions. You know my favorite line when people ask me a question I don't know? I'll look it up. I do that a lot. What's, what's the third thing I'm really afraid of? Touching them? Okay, actually catching them? Okay, okay then you've got to handle the slimy fish and get close to them so you are touching them, to put my word in there. And then what do you do with the fish? You chop their head off. Okay. The illustration may have lost something at that point, but I do want to see a radical change in them. Because that's going to verify to me that they've really been caught by Jesus. No, I'm afraid of discipling them. This is a long-term commitment. It's one thing to go fishing on a, on a Saturday morning and, and catch a couple of fish and bring them home and you just clean them and eat them after you chop their head off. But, but that's one thing. It's another thing if I have to take those fish and do something with them. Keep it alive in a fish tank, feed it, watch it grow, nurture it, and then stand there and preach to it. Teach it things. Share the Bible. Okay, illustration kind of gone a, a, a stro, a, a, out of line here, but, but this is what he's trying to do here. They, he tells them there's two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They call Simon Peter. They're casting their nets. 
or anet, really is what he says there. And then the words, follow me, which literally is come after me. It's an exhortation, the way it's written. They leave their nets, they follow him immediately, instantly, at once. They obey. So he moves on to the next example. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Uh Uh-oh, got a third party here. They're not casting a net, they're mending their nets. And he calls out to them. And they too immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. So when you go over into the other gospels, you realize they left their father with the hired men. The father, even to own a boat, would have had to have, it was a bigger business than normal. Took money. And then we realize that the sons of Zebedee had hired men helping them. This was an enterprise. This is how they made their living. So the, the sons, the two brothers at first, leave immediately, no comment. The, the second two brothers leave their father. Not in a lurch, but with the hired men. What's more important? Seek first the kingdom of God. What were they doing? Seeking first the kingdom of God. They're prepared for this message that's going to come, and it's going to reinforce what they're already practicing. So we find there, they immediately left, and then in verse 23, as as we move down here a little further, Jesus is going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease. So we see him teaching. We see him um, um, proclaiming the gospel. We see him healing individuals. I left out something here, and that's what's distracting me a little bit. The idea of following, this is what I want to go back to a second. Hang on to that note note for a second. But the idea of following is to become a companion of someone, to go in the same direction with them so you're in union together. And ultimately, it can carry the idea of imitating them, which is where righteousness would fit in. This is what the call was asking. He's calling out, summoning them to invite him to participate in the privileges of the gospel. Their occupations just changed drastically. How how well were they trained to be fishers of men? Not very well at all. What does Jesus do for the next three years? Teaches them how to be fishers of men and then leaves them. With the Holy Spirit, but he leaves. Turn them loose. He's basically asking them to go to school with him. This is the idea of follow me is to be a companion, unite yourself with me, imitate me, and so it's going to take some time. Remember as you read through the Gospels, and you may be doing that right now, you'll see how often the disciples are questioning things. Sometimes they pull them aside, sometimes they do it right in front of somebody. What was that all about? They're learning. They're struggling. They have a rabbi that's not like all the other rabbis. Their rabbi knows everything. Their rabbi never sins. He's perfect. But he does things that you don't always agree with. Takes you places where you don't always want to go. And I think of that with little Cooper that we're praying for. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he's going to go through some radical processes in his body. They will initially knock him out, but they will not knock out his parents and grandparents. The the parents and grandparents are sitting there going, God, what are you doing? Why Why don't you work on my heart and leave Cooper alone? Nope. This is my perfect plan. I let Cooper be born at a time when doctors could actually work on him. 50 years ago, goodbye, Cooper. 
So there, you, you have to see my grace already. My compassion, my kindness is already at work that we can even help him. But this is all about me working on all of you. It isn't just about Cooper. Cooper may die in surgery. Been around a few of those that have happened. Very, very difficult. Hard to explain because you can't. That goes into the realm that only God knows and only God can process for us. And in time, he reveals some things so you begin to understand what was going on. But, but here's the struggle. Follow me meant follow me. And it went, meant unrestricted, blank check. And yet when you get to John 6, many stopped following him who were disciples. So they weren't locked in. It's just like school. You can quit school after the first year because you go, I don't like this. This isn't the direction I want to go after all. But he's encouraging them to follow him. And so as they leave everything, Matthew 19.27 wants to stress that. As good old Peter, I think, is talking there in Matthew 19.27. We've left everything. What do we get? This is the kind of question the disciples were asking along the way. We never ask those kind of questions. Now, we give everything to God and we go, we're good. Take my arm, okay, God, that was your arm, no problem. Take both my legs, well, that's a little more difficult. Now I've got a left-handed body with no legs and no right arm. Oh, I'm going to take your eyesight. Then I'll take your hearing. You know there's people on planet Earth like that? How do you respond? What did you complain about last? The toast was burnt? Well, you could aim that at your wife, but she shouldn't be making your toast. Why don't you make the toast one of these mornings so she can complain to you that you burnt the toast? But we complain, don't we? We find things, that we, and ultimately, I mean complain to God. This shouldn't be happening in my life. Follow me means follow me with everything that is entailed in the process. So he goes on with verse 23, which is what I meant to start going, and I got ahead of myself. He's going about in all Galilee. This is that northern region um, around the Sea of Galilee and to the north, teaching in their synagogues. This is interesting. They let him in because he's a rabbi. This is where they meet on Sundays. This is where the scriptures are kept. You didn't walk around with the Bible back in the day. But he's proclaiming the gospel along with this teaching, the good news of the kingdom. You see the difference there? This isn't the good news of his death and resurrection. That will be explained and it will make more sense as it comes along. It hasn't happened yet. He's preaching the good news about the kingdom. Well, how can that be good news? What's good about the kingdom? If God is your king, which is what we're kind of stressing with the first one, and these new rules of practicing righteousness are your guidelines, how do you benefit? I'm sorry? You'll be the... Okay, he'll be the ruler, but how do you benefit? You have security under his rule. He's your king. He's the one providing your needs. He's the one providing your protection. He's the one giving you answers and directions. He even has a manual. Do you have one of these? We could sing another song. Maybe we'll do that one of these days. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Do they know that one? We may have to teach it to them. Maybe we'll get a group of kids up here singing it for us. The issues are you have a great king. You have these new rules that you can focus on that are only beneficial. There's nothing detrimental about righteousness. Righteousness exalts a nation. Remember the banner we used to have up here? Where's that from? 
think it's Proverbs 14.35, but I could be wrong, but it's in the scriptures. And you go look at that and you go, I don't think, why is that in Proverbs? That doesn't belong in Proverbs. But righteousness exalts a nation. That's what you should want. How are we doing in America today? Lawlessness depresses a nation. And you're watching that take place. Everybody's out for their own. They don't care about anybody else. Part of that's because of how they were brought up. Never told little Johnny no. I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that name. Never gave any controls or restrictions. Never even spanked. <gasps> You're not allowed to do that. Well, you can't under God's rules. In fact, it's required under God's rules. If you don't spank your children who are just obedient and sitting, you don't love them. We're not talking about child abuse, and we went through that whole series last year. But, but we're trying to bring up the idea here. He's setting up this new relationship. And then it's not only teaching, proclaiming. It's the best part for most of the people that were there. Healing every kind of disease and sickness. Yes! That's what we want. Did I say? Th I said 35. Proverbs 14, 34. All right? Good. Checking it out. My old age is drifting. But as he's trying to explain to them, the teaching's okay, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, I don't know if I want this new ruler and these new rules and this new lifestyle. But healing every kind of disease and sickness, I'm in. Put my arm back, my legs back, my eyes back, my ears back. Put me in good shape. How long did that last? All of those people that were healed, well, how long did it last for them? Till they died, Maybe. Or things started fading out as they reached older age. He never told them that he was healing them forever and ever. In fact, he didn't even heal everybody. He left one for Peter in Acts 3. The man who'd been crippled from birth 40 years, right by the temple. Jesus didn't even heal him. Why not? Well, that was Peter's. Thanks a lot, said the crippled man. But then when he got healed, he's leaping and dancing and praising God. There, you often think today the focus is on the healing part. No, that was signs. That was indications. What they were for wasn't to make people better forever and ever. It was to point people to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, as the servant of God, as the one that they could trust and rely upon. But this is what he's doing. So as you watch in verse 24, and the news about him went into, out into all Syria. It's not surprising reports, rumors, they're going out into all Syria. Where's Syria? You're on this map again. you got Galilee more in the north. Syria used to be out, I mean, to us it's out to the right, but it really wraps around and goes clear on over, and you can, there's a couple cities, I wrote them down here if I remember where I wrote them. But uh, Antioch of Syria is one of them. Damascus was in Syria that Paul is going off to to persecute Christians. That's that region now. So it's spreading. It's going out of Galilee up into Syria, a bigger location. And he says here, they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them temporarily. And then it tells us in verse 25 that great multitudes followed him. There's that word again. Great multitudes, this large mass of people were following him from Galilee. Now are you going to break out into some other areas? Decapolis, 
as you look at this, is northeastern Israel. Jerusalem, the capital. Judea is south Israel. Beyond the Jordan is southeastern Israel. Now they're starting to get the word out to the whole nation, the whole region of what's going on here. And these great multitudes followed him. Remember the idea of this disorganized throng of people, which is the word. There's three different words in the Greek. This is just, it's unorganized. They're just kind of a mass of people swirling around, kind of like what we think with a riot, but they're not hurting anybody or breaking anything. And which? Mostly peaceful. Yeah, that's a good term. So as he's wrestling with this whole thing, they followed him. They became his companions. They went in the same direction. And initially they were imitating him, obeying him. And you get to the feeding of the 4,000. You get to the feeding of the 5,000. He is providing them and giving out miracles to best, uh, testify as to who he is and many other miracles. But it's not about the miracles. It's about Jesus. That's what Matthew's trying to write here in the book. Just like the book of Revelation we've been studying on Wednesday nights, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's not all about prophecy and finding the answers of the end times. Look for Jesus in the book of Revelation. Look for Jesus in the book of Matthew. This is what he's trying to bring up. His fame is spreading, but where is their focus? What are they really after? The physical realm. The healings. The feeding, the amazement to watch some, him do something instantaneously with somebody that you would go, that could never happen. Boop, there it is. There's my friend George. Carried him on a pallet. Boop, George is walking, doesn't need that pallet anymore except when he sleeps at night. They saw it happening all over the place. His frame is spreading, but their focus is on the physical, not on the spiritual. Do you understand that's why he ultimately gets crucified, and he gets crucified by the Jews? They rejected him. What, what more could he do? He was asking to take over their lives. He was asking for them to repent. He wasn't even just asking. He was commanding. Change your lifestyle totally. Turn around. You're heading in the wrong direction. Come this way. And then, oh, yeah, that's great as long as you give me what I want. And so the Pharisees tried it, the Sadducees tried it, and John the Baptist even says to them, do works in keeping with repentance. Prove to me that you really repented. I know of some churches where situations went on, somebody was brought to the front of the church and repented, only to be doing the same thing a few weeks later. And when they were confronted again, no, I'm not stopping. I did that trying to get you off my backs, Whatever. But now, nope, I'm going to do what I'm doing. I'm not going to practice righteousness. And you can't do anything about it except to ask them to leave. This is the setup as he gets into these two little verses that we're going to look at. Then we're going to look at one verse a week for a while. And there's tons of information in there to look at. You don't want to miss the, the the message of the Sermon on the Mount. But he's moving them to, in chapter 5, verse 1, to, the, to this new lifestyle. Look what he says in 5.1. When he saw the multitudes, this large crowd, great multitudes in verse 25, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we're getting Matthew just a kind of a quickie compression of what went on. If you go over to look, uh, over to Luke, sorry, Luke 6, He's basically telling us what took place. He went out into the hills in those same days 
when he's seeing the crowds, when he went up on the mountain, exact same word in the Greek, but the, another translation says he went into the hills to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. That took place before the Sermon on the Mount. Then it goes in in Luke, uh, verses 14, 15, 16, to specifically share with you that he chose 12 disciples and he gives you their names. And then as he moves down into that a little further, before we catch up with Matthew, he came down with them and stood on a level place. This is where he's going to preach from in Luke 6, 17. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, he's just including all of that and they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Surprising? I'm reading out, I think it's New International Version here, but, or it's a different version, sorry if it's different. But it gives me a parallel translation. But he healed all their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came forth from him and healed them all, in verse 19. And in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and Luke 6 goes right into the Sermon on the Mount. You, you get the picture there? This is a little bigger deal. This is why when he says the word here, um, his disciples came to him, he's talking about all 12 of them, even though Matthew doesn't reveal. Matthew only gives you four, but Luke tells you, no, all 12 were there. And he says to them in verse 1, when he saw the multitudes, when he perceived them, when he discerned, he's taking a sincere look on some mountain or hill around Galilee. Prayed all night. Chose his disciples. He begin, he's going to sit down and teach them. So I threw a couple things in your outline I wanted you to look at. you got choices here. It could be Rome. It could have been uh, Jerusalem or Messiah. But you have to pick out who your king's going to be. And Israel didn't have one at the time. They'd been conquered. They'd been driven off. They died off, yet they're still around. And they will be uh, brought back. Especially David will resurrect and reign over Israel. But he says here, after he sat down, this was a common way for rabbis to teach. You'll notice in the synagogue, they stood up to read from the Torah because of respect for the word of God. But as soon as they were done reading from the Torah, well, I had to practice this. They got to sit down. And in the old days, I used to sit down more. I'm in between drugs. God is being good to me. But as he preached this, for cancer, not, not for legal drugs, for <laughs> personal needs. But this is a common way. So he's sitting down as a rabbi, beginning, and his disciples came to him. They approached and they drew near. Disciple is specifically the word learner. Matetes is just someone who's learning. We call those students. We used to. We also used to call them pupils. Now we call them raving maniacs. Juvenile delinquents, out of control, and many classrooms aren't getting anything done. These people were here legitimately. If they're a disciple, they're really there to learn. This is what it's trying to come back down to. So I threw in another little phrase in here because you think, oh, these were the, the leaders of the day. These are the people they could have looked up to. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and I just threw in another one, Zealots. The Pharisees are traditionalists. Their focus is on the past with the law, the fathers, the history. Very orthodox. You have orthodox Jews today over in Israel. But they're legalists. They thought the law could save you. It can't. The second group of Sadducees, they're modernists. 
They're kind of bringing it up to date. The present was their focus. They were open. They're broader. They have a Greek focus. And they ended up becoming more and more secular. They were liberal in their views. Not legalistic, but very liberal. So they would allow a lot of things to go. The Essenes are referred to as separatists. They had communes. Isolation was their focus. They're very self-disciplined and aloof. They cut themselves off and stayed very private. So they were out and nobody knew what they were doing. Which is why when you read Essenes, you have no idea. I don't mean anything to me. They didn't come in and attack Jesus very often. You may see them brought up, but they, were, they did their own thing. Stay away from the unclean. Keep their own way of doing um, their religion. Then you have the opposite of them. Who, the Essenes were private. The zealots were, very, zealots were very public. They're revolutionaries. Jewish patriots. We got a few of those in America today. Religious patriots. Zealous for God, but they were violent. And they showed resistance. Where the Essenes simply cut themselves off, the zealots would cut your head off. And they have those in Israel today. You've got to watch out who you're talking to. They will do you in. So the question comes down, and that's why I put it in here, what are your convictions? You can imagine this mixed crowd that's out there. It had everybody. What are your convictions? If Jesus were to come today and he were to preach this message, which only takes about 20 minutes to preach out loud, I, I hesitate to tell you that because then you won't want me to shorten my message. But Jesus can do it in 20, and it takes me at least 60. But this is what he's after. He's trying to explain to them their stand, their, their position, to follow me, to repent, to turn from what you used to be and to follow me and become what I am. That's what he said in 417. All of these different groups are coming at it from all different perspectives. Do you think some people came to Christ from the Pharisees? You can say yes, you don't know, and I don't know either. I said, do you think? You can think. Yeah. And you can go in because one of the big ones is Paul. Oh, hello. So we know one did, but then there are others, and Scripture tells you there are others. You think some came to Christ out of the Sadducees, who were so sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection? They're modernists. Who needs the resurrection? I live in the present. And they didn't believe in angels. Who needs angels? And they didn't believe in many other things that the Scriptures taught. You think some people came out of the Essenes? <gasps> that would have been really, really hard. They had it nailed down, and they wouldn't let any outside influences in. You think any came out of the zealots? Yep. He was zealous. But, but this is a group. This is a unique group. And they gang together and say, okay, tonight we're taking out Dennis. He's been preaching some things that are bad, 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 bad. Nope, you can't get away, Dennis. You don't know when we're coming. We're very high-tech. And we do it really fast. They'll just find you thinking you committed suicide. That's how we'll leave you. Sorry, I, I shouldn't focus on you, Dennis. But, but this, is, this is a group. God can save anybody. You've ever had the struggle with, I can't pray for them, they're so bad. Don't ever do that. Jesus became a friend of theirs. Jesus reached out and laid down his life for them. Tax gatherers and sinners. This is what we're to be doing. But our convictions need to come from the word of God. There, there's a great struggle here. And again, we've been talking about this some recently. And so don't, don't get mad at me. I'm just a preacher. But too often the goal today is unity. Jim brought up in Sunday school a little bit. 
The goal is not unity in, in the Sermon on the Mount. The goal is righteousness. What did he just tell you in, in Luke's, or Matthew 6.33? Seek first unity? Nope. Seek first righteousness. So the unity happens when everybody gathers around the righteousness. You maintain the unity of the Spirit because you're focused in on being disciples. You're focusing in on being companions of Christ. You're focusing in on imitating Him. That's what brings the unity. But anybody can be unified, and Jim brought this up in Sunday school this morning. Muslims are well unified. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you go down through the list. That's not what we're after. So he tells them here as he gets into verse 2, and he specifically says, opening his mouth. That was just a Hebrew way of saying he started talking. And he began to teach because he says here, began to teach. I know he said that. But it's an imperfect tense. This is talking about continual action in past time. This was something that he was doing and doing, and he did it for the next three years. Constantly teaching. What are you doing with your children? They reach age two. Maybe if yours aren't perfect, it takes to age three. And then you stop teaching them, right? When do you stop teaching your children? Never. As long as they let you say something, but you learn techniques... Hints, no money for you unless you do this. You know, you have ways of bribing, and, and same thing you did when they were two and three. But, but you find ways, but you're always teaching. And if you raise your children correctly, as Jesus was raising his disciples, they're eager to learn. In fact, they're more eager to learn when they're 30, 40, 50, 60 than they were when they were children. Because they realize you aren't as dumb after all. I had one of my children actually tell me that already. I didn't trust you. I didn't believe you. I wasn't following you because I thought you were wrong. And they finally came to an age where they came to me and humbled themselves and said, you were right. I was wrong. Doesn't change anything except for them. It makes me feel much better about them that they're coming to a point where they can be humble. This is what a good disciple is. They're acknowledging where they're at. They're not playing games. They don't come to church and everybody talks to them and, and they put on this image of, of how they're just righteous as can be. In fact, I'm so righteous it oozes out of me. Can't you see the righteousness? Why are you asking how I'm doing? Sorry. But this is what he's after. So when you get into the Sermon on the Mount, he began to teach. He was continually teaching. The Sermon on the Mount was started by Jesus and was to be acted on by the disciples. They were going to take this information and make disciples. And those disciples were going to take the information and make disciples. And so this, this is being passed on. This is the word of God. This is the word of Christ that we have. I think the word them in verse 2, he began to teach them, is a focus on the 12, especially bringing in Luke 6. But I don't think it leaves them out because it included the multitudes. Look at chapter 7 as he closes off this 20-minute sermon. Hope I'm wrong. I'm going to read it this week out loud and see how long it takes me. Because somebody told me it was 20 minutes, so I'm going to check it out. But he says here in verse 28, the very last verse, 728, the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed. So who's he teaching? Not just the 12, but the multitudes at his teaching. That word amazed there, they were struck in their minds, is literally what the Greek says. Well, how do we say it in English? I was blown away. That's the same idea bringing out here. They were blown away, amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them, oops, I'm sorry, second to last verse. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not like their scribes who gave them options. 
who gave them parameters. They, he was very specific. Nope, this is what you do. And for that reason, many didn't want to follow him. So he gets down in here. As you look at the assignment, the assignment is righteousness. 5, 6, and I'll show you this word used in the sermon. Chapter 5, verse 6, we are to thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 5, 10, he says specifically, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're to thirst for righteousness. We will be persecuted for righteousness, not lawlessness. Don't do that. Peter even brought that up later as one of the 12 who heard this message in person. He said, don't be, um, what's the word? I just lost the word. For being an evildoer, but he says, but if you're persecuted for being a Christian, that's okay. Well, I have to remember that. Somebody can look that up and tell me where it's found. But in chapter 5, verse 20, he again gives you the standard of righteousness. He says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would he say that? Because they were the extreme. They were so disciplined. They were so consistent in their own worldview and their own practice that he says, you've got to surpass that. And you're not going to. Nobody can. And in reality, they were not doing it either behind the scenes. But what was a scribe in comparison with a Pharisee? Most scribes were Pharisees. They'd come out of that group, but these were the experts in the law. Some Pharisees may not have gotten to that level. So they're a unique group, but he goes, if you had an expert in the law or an expert in your lifestyle that everybody's impressed with you, that you stand on the street corners and pray and they're going, oh, oh, I wish I could grow up to be a Pharisee someday. They didn't think it was a bad thing. But he tells them, your standard has to be higher than theirs, superior to theirs. First Peter 3, 7. Okay, I was going to say three sevens of wives or husbands. So yeah, 3.17. 1 Peter 3.17, you can check it out. I don't want to go too long today. I've got children that are being very calm and quiet and um, considerate of me, and I'm going to finish this off. Chapter 6, verse 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Pharisees. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The purpose of righteousness is to please God, not men. That's why it never bothered me when somebody's upset with me, unless I've sinned. But if I'm pleasing God in what I'm doing, I'll listen. I'll take it in. And people think I'm not listening. And I interrupt them because I don't, you give me too much information, I can't process it. So you almost need to give me pauses. Like I can have a button that just says pause. They can make a comment or ask a question. Okay, go get it. Oh, pause. I need to ask a question or write this down. That's just me. So if you get to know me, you'll realize it. But my goal in life, I taught this back in the 70s to two disciples. We went through all the verses talking about pleasing God. They were interns for the summer at our church. This is the purpose of righteousness. And the last one, 633, again we shared, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is the priority of righteousness. So you thirst for righteousness. You recognize you're going to be persecuted for righteousness. You have a standard of righteousness that's superior to men's because it only comes from God. You have a purpose for righteousness to please God. You have the priority of righteousness. You seek it first. That's why I have a great a conscience, a very strong conscience. And there's certain things I can't do. God won't let me. Because they're wrong. I don't try to water it down. Do I ever sin? Yes. Does my conscience scream at me? Yes. 
Do I have to deal with it? Yes. I'm not elevating me. I'm trying to tell you this is what you have to live by. And so I'll close off with this passage. When you get into chapter 7, this is the goal of this righteousness. Look at verses 21 to 23. And this is the scary part today. Because Jesus himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, master, master, as if the, uh, you're the one that I'm submitting my life to. Not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a heart change. This is genuine repentance. These are works in keeping with repentance that it's going to show in your life if it's real. You don't get to make up your own religion. You don't get to do your own thing. But people are trying it. And he specifies to this group of Jews that he's speaking to here. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? What are they claiming that God has to listen to? Religious works. Look what they're claiming. These aren't mild little things. Prophesied. You had about a thousand percent or the Jews were to stone you. You better not make a mistake or you're a liar. In Deuteronomy, I believe it is, they told them to kill them. I could be wrong on the book. But he says, in your name we cast out demons. Is that a big deal today? People are doing, trying to do that. Remember the, the passage where they try to do that to a certain group of people, and they say, we know who uh, Paul is, we know who Jesus is, but who are you? So it's not like the demons don't listen. It's not like the demons don't cooperate when it's in their, to their advantage. They're creating this image that you have some kind of powers from God, and so they get out. They wait a week, a month, maybe a year, and they go back in. You never hear about that. But they're claiming we did it. Maybe they did in some ways. Maybe the demons cooperated with them, but it wasn't of God. The demons didn't have to get out and didn't have to stay out. But he says in a third way, in your name, we're using Jesus, the name of Jesus, to perform many, many miracles. These are works of power. These are violations of the laws of nature. That's what a miracle is today. I've shared this with you many times. You hear the word, oh, it was a miracle. We, we won at the last minute. That's not a miracle. That's not a violation of the laws of nature. You actually hit the ball finally. And the other guy didn't catch the ball. And so your men came around and you won. Don't, don't, don't misuse the word miracle. These are supernatural acts that can only be done by God as they break the laws of nature. What you're not seeing today with many of these claims, and they're all over the new or the TV today, working a miracle. They're not raising people from the dead. Oh, they'll tell you they did over in Africa, but they don't walk into a hospital where someone just died, like Jesus would have done, and wrote, rose, or Paul and Peter did the same thing. Brought back to life. We're not talking about people that have swooned. We're not talking about people where doctors lied that they really weren't dead. We're talking about people that have been in the tomb for four days, and they probably stink. That's why Jesus had to do that. They, he had to confirm that you knew this is not of men. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a, a funny little quirk. It was supernatural. And what happened to Lazarus later? He died. It was temporary. Because it wasn't a focus on Lazarus. It was a focus on Jesus. And later on, Peter, Paul. 
So as he's wrestling with this, he says to these individuals who are claiming these great religious works, and then I will declare to them, this is Jesus speaking, I never knew you, form of, well, it's gnosko. I never had a personal relationship with you. I didn't have an experiential interaction with you. Never. It wasn't that you had your salvation, you lost your salvation, you had your salvation. I've dealt with that a lot over the years. I spent four hours with a pastor and realized, don't ever do that again. Debating, losing your salvation, getting it back again. I was supposed to do a couple that were getting married. I told him, I said, this guy's outspoken, not saved. She's claiming to be saved. Years later, I realized, I don't think she was either. But she was claiming it. And I went to the pastor doing the ceremony because I was involved. But anyway, I won't go into details. And I said, you can't marry them. Well, why not? Because she's not saved. You're, they're unequally yoked. He goes, well, what if she loses her salvation right before the wedding? I went, what? Maybe he'll get saved right before the wedding. Again, I went, what? No, you're missing the point. The point is, you're putting them together, and you're going to unite them, and they're not saved. Guess how long they made it? Because it, it did happen, and I had nothing. I couldn't do anything about it. They didn't. Short term. Sad. But they're playing games with what the scriptures teach. They're playing games with what's obvious. You don't want to have a hopeful relationship with the most important thing, Jesus Christ. That better be solid, because you're going to have enough trouble of your own in your marriage, you imperfect people. You never have troubles in your marriage, do you? We're all learning. We're all disciples. We're all growing. But the issue here is, he says to them, verse 23, I never knew you. And then he says to them, and then I don't know how this is going to handle, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What? Where's the righteousness? There wasn't any. It was all a show. Does that bother you? Because I've known, I've had a lot of friends who've been in this category. Bothers me a lot. When I can't convince them that the need is to repent. The evidence in your life is righteousness. When Jesus Christ takes over and you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. This is what I'm looking for. It's what I watch in anybody that claims that they become a believer. I watch Sometimes it takes a while for me to know one way or the other. I'm not God. I'm not sending them to heaven or hell, but I am determining whether or not I'm going to share the gospel with them again or I'm going to disciple them in Christ's likeness. But it's like I can't get an unbeliever to walk by the Spirit. So you have to make the human decisions. They're not eternal decisions, but they're necessary decisions. And in this case, why is this in the Sermon on the Mount? Why does he stress to them that you're not measuring up? Because they're not measuring up. Because he loves them. Because they have to know the truth. He's telling them while they're still on planet earth. He's telling them while they're trying to imitate Jesus in their own strength and power. And I think Satan's even cooperating with them to deceive them. And they're lost. So we're going to go through this sermon. Verse by verse. And we're going to see some things in here that are not comfortable for us. We're going to see some other things where you're going to go, man, I think I'm doing really, really well. I thank God that I'm cooperating, that I'm obeying, that I'm growing, that Christ can be seen in me. But I encourage you to, to delve into the one verse next week, which is verse 3, and ask yourself the question, why is it the first one? What does it say? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. 
spiritually bankrupt. Why start there? When you rescue a swimmer, what's the first thing you're looking for? What's that? Well, no, I don't mean after you get them out. I mean when you're rescuing them. When you go out in the lake and they're out there swimming, if they're thrashing about, you swim right up to them and just let them grab onto you because what will happen? You'll both go down. You wait until they go, one. This is what, at least in the movies, two. When they say three and they go down, okay, now they're ready. Because all you're going to do is grab onto their head and you're going to swim them back and they're going to be totally compliant. That's what the first step is in here. God says, I can't help you unless you're compliant with me and you recognize you are spiritually bankrupt, Jews and people of our day. So you look into it. We'll talk about it next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As your son Jesus Christ is our example. Your son Jesus Christ is the one we love. He's the one we can't wait to see come back and to take us to be with him. He's the one we want to spend eternity with because we love righteousness. We're seeking it first. We thirst after it. We put all of our effort into being that, that person, that righteous person. Not to earn salvation, but to verify that we have repented. We have changed our minds and we have changed directions. May that be true of each one in this room. If they have any doubts, it's not up to me to straighten it out. If I can help, great. But Father, if they have doubts, help them to find answers to those doubts. And to take this sermon that Jesus spoke early on in his ministry and realize he was trying to help Israel, his chosen people, because they were out of line and out of salvation. So may we be those people. May we reach out and help others. May this sermon be a part of our growth and a part of our ministry. And thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.